1: Science story, huh?
2: These NYU scientists, they uh, it felt. felt I, I right. really, I was so excited. I, oh, well. I figured it wow. out. It was that tall. golden moment because science was on my side.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Story Clatter, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week is a special episode that highlights two stories of disability in STEM. They were adapted from a recently published book, Uncharted, How Scientists Navigate Their Own Health, Research, and Experiences of Bias. People with disabilities are often unrepresented in STEM fields, and all too often they face isolation and ableism in academia. The stories in today's episode, like the stories featured in the book, are all about how scientists, both current and former, with disabilities and chronic conditions, navigate their careers. Our first story is from Skylar Baer, one of the co-editors of Uncharted. Skylar is also a marine ecologist, marine habitat specialist, science communicator, and storyteller based in Alaska. In 2013, she was on the Colbert Report talking about the secret lives of scallops. She's also a Story Collider producer and has been featured on our podcast many times. Her story was produced by Soundbites and performed at one Longfellow Square in Portland, Maine. It first aired on Maine Public Radio in 2019. Skylar's story is all about learning how to feel worthy when life takes away something that you once defined yourself by. Here's Skyler's story. Skylar's story.
2: I can see the coast of Maine, rugged and rocky, split between peninsulas and islands. And sometimes when I look out, I can't tell if I'm looking towards the shore or just another island. There are swatches of orange and yellow in the distance as fall is setting in. And it feels like a black and white filter tinted a dark blue, like an old film has been overlaid on the colors of summer. It's October, and it's cold. And I am sitting in a boat by myself in the middle of the ocean. I have a bright red uh, sailing jacket on with a neon yellow hood. Supposedly, if I fall in the ocean, you can see my head bobbing in the thousand square miles of dark blue ocean. Uh, In the boat, it's a center console, steering wheel in front. There are containers for lobsters that we're collecting, There's a bucket full of rope. There's an oxygen kit, life preservers, scuba diving tanks. And about 30 feet away from me, there are four of my lab mates, including my advisor, wrapped in black neoprene in 40-degree water, looking for lobsters. And I can see their bubbles rising to the surface. But I'm sitting in the boat alone, wrapped with my, my hood up, and I'm staring down, at my brown, waterproof boots. My toes are cold, and I can feel the ocean bobbing the boat, and I can hear the waves lapping against the side. And I have this deep, nagging feeling of not being good enough, of not being worthy enough, of not being strong enough. And I look out, again, at the bubbles coming up from the surface from my lab mates, and I think about how the ocean it looks more like a a glass floor than a glass ceiling, and I long to dive in to be with them. And the reason why I'm stuck alone in this boat is that after six months of training in scuba diving when I started my PhD, I got really sick, and I got diagnosed with a heart condition after a week of awful testing, and I have, have an arrhythmia. Uh, and the American Academy of underwater sciences does not allow you to scuba dive or be a scientific diver with a condition like mine, nor the defibrillator device that was uh, surgically placed inside me. And so after hours of weeping, when I got my diagnosis, I had felt like the whole Purpose of why I had moved to Maine and changed part of my science career to become a scuba diver to make that my life's choice. I felt like it had been cut out of me with a rusty, serrated edge, leaving this gaping wound in my ego. One of my committee members had said, He's like, This is a good opportunity. Uh, The The best summer I ever had as a graduate student was when I was sick and I I couldn't snorkel. He had a snorkeling project, so I got a lot of work done because I was the director of the data and I could organize and I could think because I wasn't snorkeling all the time. And then there was the marine safety officer at our station, and he had been in the Navy for 25 years. And he's like, no, I think it's so stupid how the guys who know the most in the lab, the head scientists are the ones swimming down below while they leave the dumb intern in the boat. (laughs) In the Navy, the most important person person is up on the surface in case something goes wrong. And it's true. Surface support is really important. You're the first one that calls the Coast Guard. You're there to administer oxygen. You're the one that makes the decisions when someone has a heart attack, the bends, or a rare shark attack. But I worked in a dive lab, and so I did those things. I did those things. I, I I planned the dive trips. I drove the boat, tried to be in charge of the data, but never quite felt like enough. And one time, I remember my... My advisor and I got into an argument where I was naive enough to think that we could do uh, drafts of grant proposals in the ninth hour instead of the 11th hour. <laughs> and and during that conversation, he said, he said, I don't think you're grateful enough. I don't think you're thankful enough for the other students in this lab who do your dive work for you. It was a dive lab. All of our projects had diving, and I wanted more than more than anything to be able to scuba dive with them, to pay them back in kind with their projects. But I couldn't, I wasn't allowed. I could drive the boat and do everything else that's required of a scientist. But scuba diving was where the work was. It's where the glory was. And so, back in this boat, I'm sitting, basically feeling sorry for myself, thinking about all this, And by the way, this dive trip was not for my project because I didn't study lobsters anyway. And I hear these breaths at the surface, and I think they're the scuba divers, my teammates. And I look up, and instead, about 10 feet away, there are three or more dark, gray, slick, dog-like heads with long whiskers and beady black eyes, gray seals. And they're staring at me and I'm staring at them, do this for a couple minutes, and then all of a sudden, without a sound, they disappear. And so I, knowing seals pretty well at this point, start looking around for a boat, specifically a lobster boat. And that's because seals are actually very good at taking lobsters out of lobster traps. (laughs) And fishermen, some fishermen, uh, I don't think have any reservations about shooting them on sight. So, um, they know what a lobster boat sounds like, uh, but they don't seem to mind other boats. So I start looking around and I see at the edge of this rocky Island, all of a sudden this lobster boat turns around the corner about a quarter mile away. And once they come in sight, they're heading towards me and there's not w- much else that they could head towards. Cause it's such a narrow channel behind, between these rocky, um, outcrops we call islands and, and once i can see the shape of two men i wave at them you know i have a dive flag don't run over the dive the divers and they start heading right towards me and i get kind of nervous and excited cuz when two strange men approach you on on shore for me i would be a little bit nervous right like who are these people but out on the water even though you're way more vulnerable out here on this essential desert um it's kind of exciting, because they're coming over to say hi. They might be checking if you're poaching and have a reasonable excuse like you're a scientist. But, but they're probably coming over to do something good. And once the guys are in view, I can see them. They're wearing flannels or t-shirts. And they've got ball caps on. And they've got their Grundons, um, their waterproof overalls that are bright orange and yellow. And they're warm from from hauling all day. They're not wearing their jackets, and their rock music is blaring. And they go, "Hey," I go, "Hi," and they go, uh, "Do you want a bucket of warm water?" It's not it's not clean or anything, but it's warm. And I sort of like, oh, they must they must mean like warm water for the divers for their for their gloves and and booties when they when they come back from being in the cold water. And so I dump this five-gallon bucket of rope out on the boat and hand it over to them, and they fill it with this warm, steamy water, and, and I carefully bring it over to the side of the boat, and it's, it's got bleach in it, and it's been warmed by the engine, and there's it's salt water, so it's got all these dead crustaceans floating around in it. And, and I go, thanks, and I, I point over to the divers. I go, they'll really appreciate it. And they go, oh, no, it's not for them. It's for you. And I go, oh, okay. And they take off, go look at more lobster traps. And I'm still there in that moment because they they noticed me. They didn't care about the divers, which was my whole life. They cared about what was going on with me. And they probably knew that the worst part of a day out on the water is just not working, just sitting there waiting to be useful again out there in the cold. And I felt I felt seen for the first time in a couple years out on the water, seen on this, in my mind, this two-dimensional desert that wraps around the globe that's between the vast ocean below and the vast sky above. It can be a really lonely place. But I think for a minute, and I look out at this beautiful seascape, before me on the coast of Maine. Fall is just the most beautiful time of year out on the water, even though it's bitterly cold. And I can hear the terns calling and the seagulls and the waves lapping. And I start to think that maybe I do belong out here on the water. And so I take the warm bucket of water. It smells bad. (laughs) And I take one brown waterproof boot and dip it in. And then I put the other in and then I begin to feel a little bit warmer everywhere. Thank you.
0: That was Skylar. To find out more about Skylar, visit our website storyclider.org. Also on our website is a link where you can buy the book Uncharted and an exclusive interview I did with co-editor Skylar and Gabby Cerrito Marks talking all about their incredible book that highlights disability and STEM stories and how it came to be. Here's a little preview of the interview.
2: For me, the story starts with essentially some fishermen gave me a bucket of hot water <laughs> I know that when I went through the process of refining my story, it made a big difference for me in how I conceptualized myself and my journey. There's a lot of creative problem solving that people with disabilities and chronic medical conditions have. And in science, like being creative problem solvers is what we need. What are the solutions? How do we fix things? The first step to figuring out how to improve systems is listening to stories of people who are not often listened to.
0: Head to storyclutter.org to hear the full interview. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make story clutter happen, but we know that can be intimidating and might not speak to you. So maybe becoming a story donor is more your speed. StoryClatter donors play an increasingly important role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Storyclutter is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please consider donating to the Storyclutter at storyclutterorg donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutterorg donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Collider.
2: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger. For the ones, who get it done.
0: Our next story is from Mpo Khwadi. Mpo Khwadi is a PhD student at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa, where he researches the effect of dark matter in the early universe. He has a rare autoimmune disease called transverse myelitis and has been using a wheelchair for the past 15 years. Mpo recorded his story in his home in Johannesburg, South Africa, and his story is an unbelievably inspiring tale of overcoming obstacles to achieve his dreams. Here's Mpo.
1: I am 11 years old, on my way to school. As I'm walking with my friends, I notice that I'm falling behind. Something feels off. Something feels strange around my legs. I don't know what it is, but it feels like something is holding me down and there's a strange tingly sensation around me. My friends wonder, why am I not keeping up with them? And I quickly brush it off and tell them, "Ah, I'm just tired from yesterday. As I'm walking to school, I realized this was gonna be one of those moments where I feel sick and I'm gonna be bedridden for a week. And I was right. After spending a long and boring week bedridden, I find the strength to get up and join my family for dinner. I'm happy, my life is getting back to normal. I salivated the delicious scents of my grandmother's chicken stew. It has always been my favorite meal. As I try to get up, I leap out of my bed and then, boom, I crumble to the floor. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to process this. Is it because I'm still weak from being in bed the whole week? I don't think so. Something feels strange around my legs. I cannot feel the cold sensation of the ceramic tile floor. I'm very confused by my inability to move my legs and I'm afraid of the consequences that come with it. A flood of emotions swell over me. I'm confused, worried, I'm scared. I know something is wrong with me, but I don't know exactly what it is. As I'm trying to process all of this, I don't know whether I should cry for help or try to get up by myself. I try to get up by holding on to the bed but I keep falling, and eventually I call for help. There's a dark cloud at home. I am completely paralyzed from waist down. The touch it is not that I've become paralyzed, but the fact that I'm the second child in this house to be stuck by this curse. My older brother suffered the same fate four years before I did. He collapsed at school while playing football, and that happened to be the last time he kicked the ball. Out of this whole ordeal, I was very close with my brother and we're almost inseparable. So I got to learn a lot about his change in condition. I was able to learn a few things about what it takes to be in the States, what it requires to adapt physically, psychologically, and emotionally. Six months later, it's the first day of the year at school and I'm excited about going to school. The first day at school I remember my grandma told me that everything was gonna be great and that I look as dashing as I always was. And that gave me the confidence <laughs> to go back home to go back to school as a different person, but I felt the same inside. My friends and my family and other school children treated me say the same way as they did before, and I barely noticed anything was wrong, but there was. I had a quick six months recovery, unlike my brother. I had to go for physiotherapy for regular checkups, consult several doctors. It had to take a lot of courage to accept what had happened. And I obviously knew I had to sacrifice a lot of what I'd love to do, but I was always an optimistic kid. Somehow I had a feeling I'd recover from this and regain it all. As the years went by, I could feel my legs, becoming heavier and heavier each year and with that I became eagerly and more conscious about myself, about my, my my work and everything around that part of my life. Before I started 12th grade, my school donated a wheelchair to me. My family couldn't afford one, they were too expensive. I remember my principal and teacher coming to my house. My principal was a very stern and scary man as always. Very imposing in the way he walks, but very kind. My teacher besides him looked very small in comparison, but she was very loud and cheerful, especially with me. And they introduced me to my new best friend, this new wheelchair. The wheelchair they carried was big, black in color, the ones you usually find in the hospital, and I was very happy. You see, with this wheelchair, it meant that I never had to focus on how to walk or how to position my couch to make sure that I don't fall or how to take the next step without thinking about it. In fact, all I had to do was sit and let my friends push me around. And that was nice. During that year, I knew that I had to focus on other aspects of my life, such as my studies. You see, ever since I was young, I've always wanted to become a physicist. An astrophysicist to be specific. And with this newly found form, I could now focus on the things that matter and put 100% of my focus into it. And so I did. That year, even the school accommodated me. They moved the classes to the ground floor and the toilets became easily accessible for me and just the overall attention to detail was different. However, there were still a few challenges. For instance, the cafeteria was not fully accessible and going to the library, which was situated in the first floor, meant I had to take the stairs, but luckily I had a a reliable set of friends to help me with that. When the year came to an end, I got my results and I found out that I passed with really good marks and I've been accepted to the university of my dreams. I was finally going to study astronomy and I was over the moon. I did not know what to expect going to university. This was going to be my first time away from my family and friends and going to a new space and having to encounter new people. I was concerned at first, how I was going to adjust, especially since I won't be close to the people that have helped me move around the past year. I was anxious about how people would perceive me and I was overwhelmed by the campus being very huge. However, I was introduced to the disability unit at the university and they lent me a motorized wheelchair. Ever since I had been in this situation, I had to rely on people to do mundane tasks for me. But with this new motorized wheelchair, I could do the little things like going to the dining hall by myself. I could go to the grocery stores alone and other small tasks. This, to me, is what complete freedom means, the ability to do something without thinking about it. And for the last couple of years, this had been taken away from me. This was a completely new world from the one I knew. And for the first time in a long time, I was excited to be somewhere. As a third year astronomy major, my peers and I were excited to find out that we had to go to an observatory for a lab of experiments. I was very excited to have hands-on experience with the telescope we went to Hout in the west of Johannesburg in South Africa. We spent a week learning about radio telescopes and how to perform experiments. On the first day of orientation, we were told that we will go to on top of a 26 meter telescope. And everybody was excited, including myself. And the moment I got there, I realized that the only way to get there on top of the 26 meter telescope was through a ladder, and of course, ladders and stairs are my nemesis. I was devastated because I couldn't experience what my friends were, were going through, And that made me sad and embarrassed about my whole situation. I was forced to the sideline, much to my disappointment, as I watched my fellow students and friends ascend to the dish. I was very keen to be part of that experience. This was one of many experiences where I felt embarrassed by my situation. I was once again reminded of my physical limitations. It would not stop there, however. One of the most important things that we had to do was go to the control room, controlling the telescope and gathering data. I found the control room was situated in the first floor on top of a flight of stairs. My friends helped me by carrying me in my heavy automatic wheelchair up and down the stairs for the whole week. This was embarrassing for me because I had to watch my peers struggle every day, but they did not seem to mind. All of these challenges have shaped me become the person I am today. So today is graduation day. I sit behind the curtain on stage, eagerly awaiting the Dean to say my name. I remember days when my late grandmother took care of me when I was ill, when she told me I was more than capable of achieving my dreams. And that everything would eventually work out. I knew this was what she was. She meant. She was talking about this very same day. I hear my name being called, "Impara As I make my entrance to the stage to shake the dean and being conferred my degree, I am met with a roar from the audience that sent chills down my spine. This moment feels like all the weight from my shoulders had been lifted. This had been a feeling I haven't felt in a very long time. I'm not used to the spotlight, so I don't know what to do as I approach the Dean. Something tells me to gather up the carriage and face the cheering crowd, and so I do. I hope my mom and my family can see the pride in my face as I roll to my freedom.
0: That was Impo. You can learn more about him and the book Uncharted, where his story was originally published on our website at storyclatter.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Story Collider, but there are so many other ways. And we hope you'll use all of them. You can also follow us on social media or on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storyclatter.org to become a financial supporter. Or if you want to come to a recording session of one of our shows, you can find a show near you on our website, too. The Story Collider is very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jun Chen, and Aaron Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by soundbites Donna Galuzzo and Sean Morin, and me. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Bernson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week I'll be back with stories about breakups. You won't want to miss the drama. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.
2: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.